0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai.
1: Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to far west Africa. And I am Lulu in studio with Anne Moussa, Wisani Matebula, and Tami Kuzza. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour UN Envoy emphasizes the need to neutralize all armed groups in the DRC. A new report reveals poor prison conditions in South Sudan. In Economic South Africa calls for more intra-African trade. And in sports news, Gambia's women's volleyball team leaves for World Cup qualifiers. But first the news with Anne Moussa.
2: Good morning. Although an agreement between the DRC government and the M23 rebels has been worked out, the situation is still complex. China's permanent representative to the United Nations, Luhi Jiyi, addressed reporters in New York following a Security Council meeting on the DRC. The Council heard a briefing by the head of MONUSCO, Martin Kobler, and the Special Envoy of the Secretary General for the Great Lakes region, Mary Robinson, via video from the DRC on the recent positive developments in the country. Yee says the UN Security Council needs to continue to support efforts towards peace and stability in the DRC and in the wider sub-region.
0: The uh, situation is still very complex on the ground. We do realise that um, it is not the end of the road if we work out a agreement between the government of the DRC and M23. There are other groups uh, that um, are still... Uh, in the region and it is important for the council to work uh, and also for the governments in the region to work so that there is overall peace and stability on the ground with addressing the problems that they face.
2: Meanwhile, United Nations troops will help reinforce the Democratic Republic of Congo's borders to stop rebels in arms crossing into Rwanda after the defeat of M23 rebels. France, the United States and other leading UN Security Council members have widely welcomed the defeat of M23 rebels at the talks on the conflict-stricken country. Rwanda has, however, called for a new focus on rebels who oppose its government. UN representative to the DRC Martin Kobler says, the UN peacekeeping mission will strengthen border positions to stop ethnic Hutu rebels of the democratic forces for the liberation of Rwanda crossing into Rwanda. At least eight Syrian security personnel have been killed in a car bomb attack on a military intelligence headquarters in the south. The pro-opposition Syrian Observatory for Human Rights Monitoring Group says dozens more have been wounded in the blast in Soweda, which has been largely sped the violence of civil war. Syria's Sanna State News Agency reports that 41 people have been wounded but has made no mention of the target. It attributes the bomb to terrorists, a term it often uses to describe the rebels fighting to topple President Bashar al-Assad. The Egyptian army says it has killed three militants in the North Sinai offensive. An Egyptian military officials says they died in clashes, part of a military offensive against Islamic hardliners in the desert region that adjoins Israel and the Gaza Strip. He says an armored vehicle also blew off the militant's car during the fighting. Insurgents have escalated attacks since the ousting of Islamist President Mohamed Morsi in a coup that followed protests. South Africa will strengthen its political and economic relations with Namibia today with South African President Jacob Zuma on a state visit to Namibia. Zuma, who is leading a high-level government delegation, has arrived in Namibia's capital, Vintuk, for private talks with his counterpart, Afiki Puhamba. Zuma's state visit is seen as critical, as Namibia wants to collaborate on implementing development initiatives. Namibian Foreign Affairs Minister Nitombo Nandi Ndiwata elaborates.
3: We have learned to work together over the years. When we were sharing those trenches, SWAPO and ANC sitting in the same bush to strategize on how best we can encounter and defeat the apartheid regime. Now we are using the same strategy with that experience in order for us to have clear strategies of fighting poverty. And make sure that our people, they really enjoy the fruits of our independence, the independence of the two countries.
2: The much-anticipated epic film about former South African President Nelson Mandela's life will have a special screening this evening at the White House in Washington. The film's producer, Anand Singh, says it's an exceptional honor to have the movie Mandela Long Walk to Freedom, hosted by President Barack Obama. This is a first for a South African film. Singh says the screening is also of special significance as it connects Madiba and Obama as statesmen who are responsible for major shifts in their respective Countries, they also have special places in the hearts of their people. Singh and the Mandela family have been invited to attend the prestigious event. The film will be released in South Africa on the 28th of this month, and that the news headlines at 8:30 Central African time.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, tzolta. Africa, amuka na unai.
1: Thank you, Anne. It's 8.07 Central African Time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Security Council is expected to emphasize in the coming days the need to neutralize all the other armed groups operating in eastern DRC, particularly the remnant Rwandan Hutu rebel group, the FDLR. This emerged after a closed-door briefing in New York with head of the UN mission in the country, Martin Kobler, and Great Lakes Special Envoy Mary Robinson, who up Updated members on the recent military defeat of the M23 rebel group, council described the news as a positive development in the search of a lasting solution to the decades-long insecurity in the region. Show and Bryce Peace reports.
4: It's a case of one down, many to go. With M23 vanquished as a fighting force, the military focus now shifts elsewhere, as French Permanent Representative Gérard Aroud explains.
5: All other armed groups beside the M23, which threaten civilians in the Kivu, need to be neutralized. And uh, with the support of MONUSCO, the Congolese authorities need to deal with the FDLR, the ADF Nalu, and the Mai Mai. And finally, the states of the region must deal with the root causes of the conflict.
4: France, which holds the pen on all Council texts related to the DRC, says it will circulate a draft presidential statement, one level below a resolution, that will support the positive developments on the ground. This was confirmed
0: by Council President and China's Perm Rep, Liu Ji. The uh, situation is still very complex on the grounds. We do realize that um, it is not the end of the road if we work out a agreement between the government of the DRC and M23. There are other groups uh, that um, are still uh, in the region and it is important for the Council to work uh, and also for the governments in the region to work so that there is overall peace and stability.
4: Referring to the closed-door briefing, France also indicated there was some hesitation on the part of the DRC government that they would go ahead with signing the Kampala peace accords given that M23 had now been crushed militarily. Ambassador Aroud relayed what was discussed.
5: It appears that uh, there are some uh, hesitation, I think, on the side of the DRC authorities now that uh, the, the, the rebellion movement has been crushed. Uh, to sign a sort of an agreement uh, between equals. So, uh, but at the same time, the DRC authorities have reaffirmed their will, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, to behave in good faith for, for reconciliation.
4: But for its part, the UN secretariat still expects a deal to be reached in the coming days, as a rather hoarse-sounding spokesperson, Farhan Haq told the daily press briefing.
6: I'm not going to speculate on what may happen uh, in the coming days, but our expectation remains that the parties will will be able to to deal with each other through an actual agreement. Um, I do believe that Mr. Kobler continues his own diplomatic work, as does Mary Robinson, and uh, I, I expect that he will
4: also be travelling to Kampala in the coming days. A joint communique between SADC and the International Conference on the Great Lakes Region issued in Pretoria earlier this week called on M23 to renounce the rebellion before they would be allowed to become signatories to the Kampala Peace Accords. Shervin Briceby's at the United Nations, New York.
1: South Africa will strengthen its political and economic relations with neighbor Namibia today, with President Jacob Zuma on a state visit to that country. Zuma, who is leading a high-level government delegation, has arrived in the capital, Windhoek for private talks with his counterpart, punye Pohamba. The highlight of Zuma's state visit will be the inauguration of the Binational Commission between the two nations. However, there has been criticism that South African companies' dominance has excluded locals. Tsepo Ikaneng reports from Windhoek.
7: It's about cementing historical relations. The two nations share a common past, fighting for liberation against South Africa's apartheid state, and the two want their people to enjoy the fruits of democracy. The semi-arid nation, which is diamond-rich, is economically dependent on Pretoria. South Africa accounts for 70.1% of Namibian imports, whilst Namibia's exports are a paltry 14.4%. President Jacob Zuma's state visit is seen as critical as Namibia wants to collaborate on implementing developmental initiatives. Netumbo Nandi Ndaitwa is Namibian Foreign Affairs Minister.
3: We have learned to work together over the years. When we were sharing those trenches, SWAPO and ANC sitting in the same bush to strategize on how best we can encounter and defeat the apartheid regime. Now we are using the same strategy with that experience in order for us to have clear strategies of fighting poverty and make sure that our people, they really enjoy the fruits of our independence, the independence of the two countries. And it's even important now that our leaders are the ones who are leading us in this process.
7: It's a view shared by her South African counterpart, Maite Mkwana We have
3: shared trenches together. As South Africa goes into celebrating 20th anniversary of our freedom which we fought for side by side with Namibia. Our people want to also get not only peace dividend, freedom benefit. They want to get into the Uhuru celebration. So that can come through an acceleration of the economic collaboration projects. Key amongst them, remember the issues of infrastructure build and
7: integration of our region of SADC, but also of our two countries south african companies have a dominant presence in namibia and are in various sectors including mining housing food and beverages construction hotels and leisure banking and medical services however locals are concerned that south african companies are resisting moves to allow local entrepreneurs to get a stake in dominant entities like in banking and retail editor of the daily namibian sun toivon Jevela has blamed the namibian government for allowing South African-owned companies to derail black economic empowerment initiatives.
8: The government is, is very soft on, uh, on investors. They sub- sometimes ignore the calls for, for, for the acquisition of stakes in uh, foreign businesses. They, they don't want to scare away um, investors. We, we desperately uh, need investment in this country. And, and we look south, really, for us. We look south for, for those investors. Uh, we look to South Africa mostly. Namibians are saying that, you know, Employment alone is not enough, you know, to be an, a, a cashier in a shop right for argument's sake. It's not enough.
7: The, the true empowerment will come if we acquire stakes, not in the Zimbabwean way. President Zuma will address the Namibian National Parliament later today. That
1: was South African President Jacob Zuma ending that report by Zelene Merrington in Parliament.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zoka. Africa, amka na unay.
1: South African President Jacob Zuma has answered questions in the National Assembly ranging from domestic to continental issues. Zuma told MPs that the African Union had discussed at length the indictment of the Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta and his deputy William Ruto by the International Criminal Court. He also answered questions about government's cost cutting measures, how his office would contribute to it, and was quizzed about whether he was Aware of the Gupta family's jet which landed at Waterkloof Air Base without permission. Zaline Merrington reports. President
9: Jacob Zuma had to explain why South Africa had endorsed the African Union's decision for the ICC to suspend the prosecution of the Kenyan president and his deputy. He explained that in terms of the Kenyan constitution, only the deputy president may act when the president is not in the country. But seeing that both have been summoned to the ICC, it would leave that country with a constitutional predicament. The two Kenyan leaders had apparently asked that they be allowed to attend the beginning and the closing of the hearing.
10: AU said, we are supporting Kenya to make an appeal that the ICC must reconsider the decision. Did not just end there. Establish a group of five to engage the Security Council to discuss the matter. Because we said, we need to treat these leaders also fairly. And that's a background, and that's why the decision was taken.
9: On the home front, COPE leader Musiwa Lakota wanted to know from Zuma how his administration planned to crack down on the abuse of state credit cards.
11: When this issue first came out, we thought, most people in the country thought that we would see government uproot ministers who are corrupt, officials who are corrupt, premiers who are corrupt, especially those who eat more Kentucky than the whole of Kaeli Chakena for.
1: But
9: Zuma says cost-cutting measures, like state credit cards being withdrawn to address the abuse of state funds, is being implemented.
10: How long the measures will remain, I think that will be determined by the financial situation, as you'd know, particularly because we are still faced with economic challenges. And I think we cannot put the cut-off date for now. And I think we'll be able to handle the matter, look at the situation and see how far is the health of our finances. And that will determine when then we'll think that the measures could now be changed or lifted.
9: He once again told MPs that he had no knowledge about the Gupta family's private jet that landed at the Vatrikluv Air Force Base earlier this year.
10: There are so many thousands of people who land in airports in this country. Many airports. The President knows nothing about those people. In fact, that you are counting so many people who landed there. There are so many who landed in Lanseria, at OR. Why should the President know about these numbers? I have given the answer, I had no knowledge, I know nothing about it, and I can answer on behalf of an official in some military tribunal. That's not my business.
1: That was South African President Jacob Zuma ending that report by Zelene Merrington in Parliament. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine at 8.19 Central African Time and I'm your host Lulu Gabu coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A seminar on a book titled The African Union 10 Years Later Solving African Problems with Pan-Africanism and the African Renaissance was held in the capital Pretoria yesterday. The seminar was hosted by the South African Human Science Research Council, Professor Pindile Lukela Olorunju, the Chief Executive Officer at the African Institute of South Africa, gave a talk about the role of women in alleviating poverty at the seminar. She oh, she is also one of the editors of the book. She elaborates.
12: Well, the book is uh, looking at uh, the challenges that Africa is facing and also trying to see how some of these challenges can be resolved or can be solved. Uh, It looks at different uh, pillars in terms of um, education, in terms of um, poverty alleviation, issues on African Renaissance. It's a book that is made out of different papers that were presented by African
6: You gave a talk focusing on the role of women in alleviating poverty. What is the role, what should be the role of women in alleviating poverty?
12: Well, women are very, very close to what I would call poverty alleviation because they are the ones that stay at home, provide food for children, for everybody. They provide food, they produce food, they distribute food. They participate in agricultural research. They are collectors of germplasm. They are preservers of germplasm. And they also work in agricultural areas because agriculture provides food and poverty is also linked to hunger. And once people cannot have food, they can't do any other thing because that is the main thing that needs to be addressed when we are talking about poverty alleviation. Women are close to the problem, and therefore they are the ones that can be found to be easy to solve this problem.
6: And in your view, Professor, how far has Africa come along, or how far has it gone in alleviating poverty?
12: Well, I must say that um, Africa has tried in the sense that the African states, the heads of states of African countries, they embraced the Millennium Development Goals, one of them was poverty alleviation, where it talks about poverty issues. That is the number one Millennium Development Goal, which African countries endorsed. And also, the African Union, they declared 2010 to 2020 as the African Women's Decade, where they looked at issues of agriculture, food security, gender equality, and They are focusing on issues that will alleviate poverty, including even unemployment. So the African states are doing something positive. It may be slow, but they are focusing on the issue because they do realize that There is poverty in Africa.
6: Just going back to your topic of discussion, examining the role women play in alleviating poverty, what would you say are some of the challenges that women come across when it comes to tackling this uh, millennium development goal of alleviating poverty?
12: Yes, women have a lot of challenges that they face. And some of these challenges are that women suffer a lot of injustice in the sense that they are discriminated against especially in issues of agricultural inputs and services. And also you find that there are also very few women extension in the extension services, like 7% of women are found in extension services. There are less than 10% women that are able to get credit in terms of getting money from the bank to be able to do you know, agriculture that is not just on a subsistence level. Women are deprived land. Some, of, some women work in the farms and they're not paid. And there's also, you know, poor access for, for, for women farmers to take their produce to the market. There are a lot of other things like the cultural barriers where, you know, a woman cannot inherit land. And you find that also a woman has to be the first one to sell, you know, her little item to be able to make sure that there's food in the house. So these are some of the challenges that women face.
1: That was Professor Pindile Lukela Olorundru, the Chief Executive Officer at the African Institute of South Africa, talking to Nsantla Masangu.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, so Africa, amuka na unai.
1: The United Nations Development Programme, UNDP, has just released a shocking report and a pictorial booklet showing inhumane conditions in 22 of South Sudan's 79 prisons. The prisons built during the colonial days 83 years ago are in deplorable condition. James Shimaniula reports.
11: It took the United Nations Development Programme, UNDP, more than six months to compile the shocking report on inhuman conditions in South Sudan prisons. The report says male, female, children and mentally ill live together in dirty, crowded cells. The children are not prisoners. They are there with their mothers, the report says, adding mentally ill people are not prisoners. They are there because of lack of mental hospitals in South Sudan. The report reveals that prisons have inadequate health facilities and that toilet facilities are non existent, forcing prisoners to relieve themselves in open places near prisons. The prisoners, according to the report, bath in nearby streams and rivers. Now, UNDP country director for South Sudan, Balazze Hovath, wants the authorities in the country to improve prison conditions. She underscores the seriousness of of in human conditions in 22 of South Sudan's 79 prisons.
13: We have been appealing to development partners and to donor community to take this issue very
11: seriously. Reflecting on the impact of a booklet containing pictures of prisoners the UNDP took in South Sudan prisons, Horvath had this to say.
13: A picture tells a thousand words. Really, once you look through the picture book, It really shows you that there are very serious issues that need to be dealt with. And once this sinks in, I'm sure there will be people who will be coming forward and saying, well, we can support this in one or another.
11: As has been said, mental patients are kept in prisons instead of hospitals. Director General of South Sudan's National Prison Service, Habel McCoy Wall, explains why the patients are living in prisons instead of living in hospitals.
12: Mentally ill are not part of the prisons, but because of the security for themselves, they are brought into prison so that they are contained peacefully. Otherwise, the Ministry of Health stakeholders should they actually study the case so that they have a special asylum or mental hospital.
11: The UNDP report also says children are also in prison with adults. Wall explains briefly why the children are there. Because of no resources, this is why we are putting them. South Sudan government in the capital Juba says it has studied the report and will improve prison conditions in the future once funds are available reporting for channel africa this is james shimanula
1: Amnesty International and the Centre for Environment, Human Rights and Development have accused the petrochemical giant Shell of manipulating oil spill investigations in Nigeria, saying the company's claims on oil pollution in the region are deeply suspect and often untrue. A new report published today uncovers specific cases in which Shell has wrongly reported the cause of oil spills, the volume of oil spills, or the extent and adequacy of cleanup measures. To find out more on this, Channel Africa's Khusse Khodingake spoke to Audrey Goran, Director of Global Issues at Amnesty International.
14: In the Niger Delta, there are hundreds of oil spills every year. Um, most of the population relies on fisheries or farming for their livelihood. And so when there are oil spills in the water on the land, it destroys their, their crops their fisheries, and really a very, very damaging impact on their livelihoods, but also people's access to food, access to clean water, and and serious risks for their health. So these are the human rights issues at the heart of this story.
6: Now, how has Amnesty International and the Center for Environment, Human Rights, and Development come to the conclusion that Shell claims about oil spills in the Niger Delta cannot be trusted?
14: Shell and other companies claim that the vast majority of oil spills in the Niger Delta are caused by theft of oil or sabotage of their pipelines. And what we've done in this report is look at the system for investigating oil spills, how they're investigated, how the cause is established, how the volume of oil spills is established. And we have found flaws at every point that we looked at on this system. Such that, we believe corrosion related spills caused by corroded or old pipes are being underestimated, and spills caused by sabotage or theft are being overstated. And this has a very serious impact on the communities because people can't get compensation if an oil spill is caused by sabotage or theft. And if a spill is caused sabotage or theft, and that's incorrect, it's actually corrosion, then the community gets no compensation, no matter how much damage is done to their farms and fisheries.
9: You talk
6: about Shell laying a lot of the blame for oil spillages on theft and sabotage. What does this mean, and is there any truth to at least some of these claims?
14: Yes, I think our report makes very clear that we fully accept sabotage causes oil spills. Oil theft causes oil spills, although oil theft is a different phenomenon. Stealing oil doesn't necessarily result in an oil spill, but in the Niger Delta, yes, it does. So we acknowledge that both sabotage and theft are serious problems, but we're concerned that they're being used as a PR maneuver by oil companies to deflect attention away from the oil spills that are also caused by old, leaking, and corroded pipes. And this part of the story is being swept under the carpet, as it were, and it needs to be brought out much more clearly. Also, when companies make these claims, they refer to figures. These figures are collected through a system that is absolutely lacking in credibility.
6: Now, when these reports arising from these investigations are taken at face value, what are the consequences for the affected community, apart from the fact that you say then they will not be compensated? But what else do they suffer from?
14: Well, I think there's two things that come up here. One is if we look at how volume is recorded, we found spills where the volume appears to have been significantly under-recorded. So the investigation says a small amount was spilled when quite a large amount was spilt. And this can affect the kind of clean-up that's done, because if the spill is recorded as, as relatively small, but in fact was much larger, then the clean-up may be quite small and leave a lot of pollution behind. And the United Nations Environment Programme recently confirmed that a lot of the Niger-Delta, one part, Land, is highly polluted, even when the regulators have certified the site as cleaned up. So the regulatory system in the Niger-Delta doesn't work at all in, in terms of the oil industry. The other impact this has, and this is a matter of considerable concern, is the tension it creates in the Niger Delta, because communities believe that the oil companies are making claims that are not true, and this creates a lot of tension between the companies and the communities, and it has done over many years, because our report looks at how this has been an issue for more than 10 years. And that tension is extremely damaging, and has led to, to sort of conflicts with the oil companies.
6: But one question is, why would Shell want to give reports about oil spills that are misleading and even false? Is it a question of greed?
14: I think there's a number of things at play here. And one of the things that we found when we were doing this investigation is... It's a narrative that Shell, and it's not just Shell, there are other companies operating in the Delta, but it's a story that Shell has built up. The Niger Delta is seriously polluted. Hundreds of oil spills occur, but it's largely sabotage and theft, and therefore it's not our fault. We're a company trying to do our best. And that's a public relations narrative the company has invested a lot of energy in. And it helps them to defend to the media, to their investors, to those who are concerned about their impact. It helps them to defend their record, because hundreds of oil spills is an appalling record to have. What we're concerned about is that's not the full or accurate picture. It leaves a lot of corrosion-related spills underreported, and it means that when solutions are being discussed, those solutions are to a problem that's not properly represented by what Shell says.
1: That was Audrey Goran, Director of Global Issues at Amnesty International, on the line from London, talking to Kusiko Dingake. We now cross over to Anne Moussa for the headlines.
2: Good morning. The International Criminal Court Chief Prosecutor for Topin Soda claims she has evidence of individuals who tried to bribe witnesses on behalf of Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta to withdraw their testimony against him. United Nations troops will help reinforce the Democratic Republic of Congo's borders to stop rebels and arms crossing into Rwanda after the defeat of M23 rebels. And at least eight Syrian security personnel have been killed in a car bomb attack on a military intelligence headquarters and the South. And those are the stories making headlines.
1: Thank you, Anne. The Institute for Security Studies says South Africa's 2012 or 2013 crime trends reported by police earlier this year are incorrect. South Africa's Police Service National Commissioner General Ria Piecha previously stated that crime was under control and delivered a message of hope and confidence to the country. The ISS says this message of hope is based on the reduction of crime that mostly occurred between 2002, 2003 and 2010, 2011. For more on this, Channel Africa's Komoto spoke to Johan Berger, senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies.
5: Just looking at the release on the 19th of September by the police, we have questioned their calculations in terms of determining the crime ratios. We have not questioned the credibility of the raw figures. Uh, We accept the raw figures as, as correct, but we have looked at the population figures that they used to calculate the ratios, and we believe that although they used the correct population figures for the 2012-2013 crime statistics, they did not recalculate the crime figures and and the crime ratios that they they did for the 2011-2012 crime report. The latest population figures were released by Stats SA about a month after the 2011-2012 crime uh, report came out, and it's standard practice that previously the police used estimates stats essay released from time to time but now they had the accurate population figures and we believe they should have used that to recalculate the 2011-2012 figures so that you could use those recalculated ratios to compare the 2012-2013 ratios with the impact or the effectiveness is that if you look at the ratios the increases are more severe in every crime category than the police indicated. And even where they indicated reductions in certain crimes, our calculations showed that the reductions were much smaller. The effect of this is it's misleading. We are not saying they did this deliberately. What we are saying is it is wrong and it should be corrected.
9: Were there any categories that were accurate?
5: Most of the crime categories that we looked at, you know, just starting with murder, murder the police indicated, and and again I'm stressing the fact this is the ratios, the number of crimes per 100,000 of the population. If you look at the police's ratios, they worked out that murder increased by 0.6%. If you use the correct population figures for 2011-2012 and then compare that with the 2012-2013 period, murder actually increased by 2.6%. The difference is 2%. And also if you look at some of the other uh, crimes, if you look, for example, at robbery with aggravated circumstances where the police indicate there was a a drop of almost 8% in truth, it was only six percent. So, if you look at uh, street robbery, then it's even more pronounced. Street robbery, the police show it decreased by four point four percent, where the correct calculation show it only decreased by two point five percent.
9: You then went um, on to say that South Africans are at a greater risk than last year of being murdered or being attacked in their own homes. Many saying that this could be an exaggeration from your side. What would you say about that?
5: I mean, it's absolute nonsense. <laughs> you know. Keep in mind that murder has been declining in South Africa over the last eighteen years, something like fifty four percent since ninety four, ninety five. We were very pleased that we were continuing on this downward trend. But in terms of the raw figures, there was an increase I think of seven hundred and fifty six. So more people were murdered in South Africa in the 2012-2013 period than in the year before. You know, you can divide that by 365, and I think it's about two or three people per day that is murdered more than than we had before. All of these indicate that we are now more at risk of being murdered than we were a year before.
9: You are now requesting an inquiry to be done by independent statisticians from the South African universities and from Statistics South Africa. What has been the response from the South African police services and or from the government?
5: We approached the Office of the National Commissioner the day after the crime stats were released on the 19th of September. So on the 20th of September we sent a formal request to the Office of the National Commissioner and of course we approached also the Minister and the Secretary of Police. Our request was that we discussed this. It is incorrect, and we need this to be fixed. The police did not react to us. We had a positive reaction from the minister's office and from the secretariat's office. So hopefully this can still be followed up. Unfortunately, the police were not cooperative, and uh, we're hoping that the minister's office will intervene. I think it's in all our interest that we fix this problem
1: That was Johan Berger, senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, talking to Kumuzo Mopulane. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.40 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The World Meteorological Organization released its annual Greenhouse Gas Bulletin yesterday which highlights yet again how heat-trapping gases from human activities have upset the natural balance of our atmosphere and are a major contribution to climate change. Oksana Tarasov, a scientific officer for the World Meteorological Organization says carbon dioxide, mainly from fossil fuel-related emissions, accounted for 80% of this increase.
15: Well, this greenhouse gas bulletin reports every year on the state of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So we report the global average concentrations of key greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and a number of other greenhouse gases.
11: This report, what does it show in particular with regards to the mm-hmm. greenhouse concentration in the atmosphere?
15: Well, this year, as last year, we report bad news. Basically that the concentrations of the main greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide, they hit their historic records. If we compare the current concentrations with what has been seen in atmosphere for last 800,000 years. We can say that we are higher than those levels, and we are higher than the level which was reached last year. So carbon dioxide has increased by 2.2 ppm, which is the growth of carbon dioxide is higher than 10 years average growth rate for the last 10 years. Methane continues growing as it has been growing since 2007. And this year, it added 6 ppb, and nitrous oxide also continues growing, and the growth rate has 0.9 ppb, and it is also higher than 10 years average growth rate. So basically, the three key greenhouse gases they are continue rising, and carbon dioxide rises with a higher rate than average for let's say, last 10 years or even higher than last 20 years and 30 years.
11: Now, why do these uh, gases being called greenhouse gases?
15: They are called greenhouse gases because they are trap the heat or infrared radiation in the atmosphere. So if we put those gases in the atmosphere, then the energy which comes from the sun, it hits the Earth's surface, and then it should escape... To the space back so we should have a balance but if we put those gases in the atmosphere they uh, absorb those heat which is coming from Earth's surface and re it back in the atmosphere so they work basically like a glass in the greenhouse so they increase the radiative forcing or the extra heat available in the atmosphere and we also report about that in the bulletin to characterize that heat effect. We speak about radiative forcing, or it is also expressed like the greenhouse gas index, which is prepared by NOAA. And if we have a look at what is going on in the atmosphere, then within last 22 years, from 1990 to 2012, we increased the radiative forcing of those gases, or you can say the heat we trap heat in the atmosphere which is like additional 32 percent to what has been already accumulated
1: that was oksana tarasov scientific officer for the world meteorological organization on the line from geneva talking to channel africa's wandile kalipa South African Saving Institute SASI has cautioned South African consumers against reckless spending this festive season. SASI provides financial education and relevant financial information to consumers through various campaigns throughout the year. This year's festive season campaign launched yesterday in Johannesburg under the theme, Spend Wisely, New Year Ahead. The campaign aims to refocus consumers on wise spending and guide them on how to avoid unnecessary consumption expenditure. Channel Africa's Tutungobeni has more. The South African
16: Saving Institute, SASI, says although the household debt ratio in South Africa is just under 76% this year compared to the 80% of a few years ago, consumers are not saving enough as disposable household saving levels remain at a mere 1.7%. SASI has called on South Africans not to blow their bonuses during this year's festive season but rather plan for January. SASI person Prem Governor, explains. It is important, particularly
3: if they were lucky enough to get a bonus. You must remember this is a once-off opportunity to actually settle debt. But more importantly than settling debt, it's an opportunity to ensure that come January, their children have school fees, they have uniforms, and that they have money for transport to work and school. Something that people tend to forget when
16: they spend. Governor says there are issues of financial literacy everywhere in the world, but South Africans must try harder to save.
3: This is not a situation unique to South Africa. I think there are issues with financial literacy the world over, even in the developed nations. So this is not something that our government is fighting on its own. But I think the downside for us is that we have almost like two economies. I mean, we've got first world and third world components amongst our population. So unfortunately, we've got to try that much harder.
16: Manager Registrations and Compliance Division at South Africa's National Credit Regulator, Adrian Skye, says credit isn't bad if it's used for important things like education.
0: What we need to emphasize is that credit is neither good nor bad. It depends what you use the credit for. If you use credit for capital expenditure, it's probably a very, very good thing. If you're using or taking credit, particularly credit you can't afford, and spending it on a holiday to go to Switzerland to go and ski, that's probably not a very, very good thing.
16: Sky says unsecured credit also has its positives if used wisely.
0: But again, unsecured credit is not necessarily a bad thing. If unsecured credit gives people who were previously unable to get access to the credit market, gives them access, and if they use it for good things, for capital expenditure, if they're using it for the proverbial ski holiday in Switzerland, Clearly not such
16: a good thing. Head of personal finance research at the University of South Africa, Professor Benedine De Klerk says parents should teach their children how to save at an earlier stage.
1: That report by Tutongubeni. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 847 Central African time. And we now cross over to Isani Matebula for our economics news.
13: Morning, South African President Jacob Zuma says one of the best mechanisms of achieving intra-African trade is uh, through regional integration and infrastructure development. He was responding to questions in the National Assembly. Zuma says the African Union is taking a strong position to ensure that it promotes uh, intra-African trade. To
10: promote regional integration work is ongoing, to create a tripartite free trade area among the regional economic communities of the common market for Eastern and Southern Africa, the East African community and SADC. The ultimate goal is to establish a single customs union. The three regional economic communities comprise 26 countries, a combined population of close to 600 million people, and a combined GDP of just under one trillion U.S. dollars.
13: Meanwhile, South African cabinet ministers have already been notified about the withdrawal of credit cards from all government officials and political office bearers. President Jacob Zuma has revealed this while addressing the National Assembly during oral replies in Parliament. Zuma says this forms part of the cost-cutting measures recently announced by Finance Minister Pravin Godan.
10: The amendments to the Treasury regulation on the issue of the credit cards were published for public comment today on the 6th of November. In instances where there has been credit card abuse in the past, the transgressors will be dealt with according to the appropriate regulations and structures. The Executive and Parliamentary Ethics codes, Public Service Act, the Public Finance Management Act and Treasury regulations outline various processes to be followed in such cases.
13: Nigeria's second largest bank by assets and its bank says it expects to increase loans to the country's privatized power companies as uh, the government seeks to end blackouts in Africa's biggest oil producer. Loans to the power sector may rise to 10% on the back of uh, the bank's loan book by next year. Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan has in September handed control of 14 power plants to buyers including the Munich-based uh, Siemens AG and Forte Oil to secure funding for the facilities and end daily blackouts in sub-Saharan Africa's second biggest economy. And Adcock Ingram's largest shareholder says it won't back a $1.2 billion takeover proposal from Chilean drug maker CFR Pharmaceuticals, saying it is uh, not in the investors' best interests. South Africa's biggest asset manager, a public investment corporation, says uh, the non-binding nature of the proposal means uh, the terms of the bid for the Johannesburg-based Adcock cannot be considered to be final. Adcock's shares dropped 4.5% at the back of the news. Tanzania's economy is set to grow 7% this year. However, the government needs to expand revenue by simplifying tax exemptions and curbing power subsidies to sustain growth and ease financial pressure. The IMF says Tanzania's inflation is expected to slip back towards the government's target of 5% by mid-2014 after dropping 6.1% this year. The U.S. dollar trading at uh, 10.22 South African rands at 8.52 Botswana pula and 5.48 Zambian Quachas also at 0.62 British pound and 0.74 to the euro. Commodities gold $1,318, platinum 14054 dollars a fine ounce and the price of Brent crude oil hovering at around $105 per barrel. And that's how it's looking.
1: Thank you, Isani. Tami Kruza, can you give us an update on your sports news?
8: A quick look in your sport: A 16-man delegation from the Gambian female national volleyball team on Tuesday left for Banjul to participate in the Zonal stage of the 2014 World Championship qualifiers to be held in Praia, from in, in Praia and Cavet from the 7th until the 11th of November this year. The Gambian delegation to the championship is headed by Pa. Saware Faye, the Deputy Director at the Department of Youth and Sport. The Gambian government, through the Minister of Youth and Sport, ensured that the team's participation in the qualifiers will be a provision of the needy and needed logistics. Head coach, Corporal Lamine F. Baji, stated that they are well prepared for the championship, both physically, mentally and emotionally, and is fully aware of the task that lies ahead of them. In soccer, South Africa's Orlando Pirates coach Roger Desa says losing Andy Lejali in the final stage of the CAF Championship is a huge blow for his team. Pirates flew out to Egypt yesterday for the second leg of the CAF Champions League final against defending champions Al-Akhli. The match will take place at the Arab Contractors Stadium in Cairo this Sunday. The teams are tied at one all following Saturday's first leg at Orlando Stadium in Soweto. Desa says his team has depth and will manage to turn things around.
10: Always a big blow when we missing a couple of players. Sangweni Happy, uh, Andile, Patrick. You know, Chumayelo is not 100% either. so we have a few guys missing.
7: But it opens the door for somebody else to step in, and it's happened before. The guys that have come in have always done the job. So
14: once again, good luck to the ones who come in.
8: That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa.
0: Africa rise and shine Africa sota Africa amika na unai
1: Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, UN Envoy emphasizes the need to neutralize all armed groups in the DRC and new report reveals poor prison conditions in South Sudan. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutso Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332590. Five, taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Huma Sigela with Tanai.